0: Deborah L. Klein is a professor of anthropology at Gavilan College in California. Her new book is Yoruba Bata Goes Global. Thank you for joining me, Deborah.
1: My pleasure. Deborah,
0: where is Yoruba, and why is it going global?
1: (laughs) Good questions. Uh, Yoruba actually is a group of people so it is a culture and an ethnicity and a language and so the Yoruba people probably number over 20 million in the world today and they mostly live in the southwestern part of Nigeria West Africa but through the diaspora through slavery uh, they have been uh, dispersed throughout the world namely Cuba Brazil and the US South and now live in lots of other places
0: could you talk about how this culture is tied together across so many places and where the, the center point of this culture is right now?
1: Uh that's a big a big one. But um the like I said through slavery by force most of people most of Yoruba people were captured around the 1600s and all the way through the 1800, 1800 or so and dispersed uh by force to mostly Cuba, Brazil and some other parts of the Caribbean and the US South. So that's really literally how people ancestrally ended up in all those different places. And the today people by choice because nigerians are adventurous and successful entrepreneurs and ambitious and there's been crises in the country like the biafran civil war and a bad economy and two really horrible dictators uh people have chosen to leave the country and have thus dispersed uh, lots of other places and uh the i could speak about the bata tradition specifically if you like or or is that?
0: Well, tell me, yes. what is the Bata tradition?
1: So, this is a ritual and a form of drumming and dancing and masquerading that's also used for entertainment and it's been in existence since people say they can remember but probably around for the 1400s uh, under Shango who was uh, king of Ife, which is a major um, actually is the birthplace of Yoruba civilization so people say in Nigeria and the king was so powerful that he commissioned his own drums and this ensemble called Bata was created just for him And it was played by drumming lineages to, and still is, to celebrate kings, and particular him. And it's said to be the drumming ensemble with the most complexity rhythmically, the most um, ability to communicate with the spirits and the gods and goddesses in the sky, and mediate between humans and spirits, with uh, the drums with the most might that you can hear from miles and miles away. And um, they're legendary. And because of that, they also have an association in Nigeria with paganism, what people call paganism, which is not um, pre-Muslim or pre-Christian ways of believing. And so they've been, unfortunately, people who have played these drums can be uh, thought of as um, pagan, and that's a derogatory way of, of thinking of, of people. So the drummers have had to actually deal with discrimination in their own country um, because of the histories of missionization.
0: Your your book is a, a look at cross cultural encounters, mm-hmm. a- and the specifically the the pollination that inc- occurred between as as three essentially three people uh, mm-hmm. went to study this culture. Could you talk about what you refer to Anna Singh's work in in friction? Could you talk about this friction, what that is, and how that imp- plays into your book?
1: Sure. Um, You're probably referring to all the way back in the 1950s, actually. Sure. uh, Two uh, culture brokers, I call them culture brokers, came from one from Germany, one from Austria. They were actually married, Uli Bayer and Suzanne Wenger, and they came because it was post-World War II Germany, and they were um, wanting to get out of, of their own country and explore something they thought was authentic, and um and fascinating which was Yoruba culture and so they landed basically really close to where i ended up studying in oshogbo and they, they got very excited by the traditional drumming, the culture that was going on in the area. They also, it was still colonial during that time, the British-occupied Nigeria. They So they really wanted to um, help revive the culture under the pressure of Christianized, Christian missions and co- British colonization. So they single-handedly really got people um, in Oshogbo excited about uh, producing their culture in large you know, in and, and large numbers, uh, having people um, have shows and, and learn the traditional ways again. And so in some ways, this history, this period is think, thought of as a revival. And it was a collaborative effort among some Europeans and some foreigners as well as the Nigerians. And what I write about is the tensions that happen when brokers from afar, especially in Westernized countries where they have lots of resources and mobility, interact and have and collaborate with people in Nigeria who have who are often at the mercy of the people who have more resources. And um, and both parties have things to gain from the collaboration. And the collaborations have produced beautiful art. And, um, and contacts and networks. However, what I found living in Nigeria is that the artists on the ground often felt um, slighted or disrespected or misunderstood or that something went awry, something went wrong in the, the brokerage, the, deal, the dealing, and they were left feeling um, hurt literally or betrayed. And so because I was living with the artists I heard these stories time and time again and felt like it was worth writing about and um, bringing, bringing out
0: Well, well, one of the things I found really interesting was Suzanne Wenger, she went native. Yes. And and She, she left her husband or her husband left her and returned with a new wife.
1: It's true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. So he went back to Germany. Um, not too long after staying, I think he he stayed in Nigeria for a few years and then left and came back several times after that and became a famous sort of broker or sponsor of artists, but from based out of Germany and married Georgina Bayer, who was an artist and is an artist, and came back with her and helped begin this Oshogbo arts movement. Meanwhile, Suzanne Wenger ended up um, staying f- and becoming involved in the religion. And she became a priestess eventually, a priestess of Obatala, who's the Orisha, or god of creation. And she became immersed, and Never Left is still there, and in her 90s. And her house still stands, and she's taken care of many, many Yoruba children. She's taken them in like they were her own, and she lives her life um, very traditionally, you could say.
0: The Yoruba tradition is really fascinating because from the beginning, the children are often named for, for drums.
1: That's true. It, you're often your name has to do with the lineage or the family that you're born into. So if you're born into a lineage that has historically played drums, then your name reflects that. So Ayang is the prefix that your name would have if you were born into a drumming lineage.
0: Now, now, Susan Wenger, this isn't just drumming art, though. This is uh, the full spectrum of art. And Susan Wenger is, is, is striking sculptures that, that you should have photographs of.
1: Definitely. she's um, She was inspired by what in the art world is called expressionism, or even before that, primitivism. And her sculptures are larger-than-life, hyper-real, hyper-exaggerated pieces that stand in what's now called the Grove. The Grove is a UNESCO site. Um, for culture preservation. She went all out to make sure that people left the trees and stopped hunting the monkeys there and really um, f- put up her sculptures to be places where people could come to commune with nature, the spirits, worship, whatever people might want to do in in those um, shrines. And she, she built shrines, little shrines, and um, big, big statues um, of figures who are half human, half beast, and, and persona of Characters that are uh, from Yoruba mythology.
0: Now, this these drumming rituals and these these uh, entertainments, these shows they put on, they're pretty fabulous. They're they're pretty complicated. Yes. But and they're also not. It's not a, just a serious religious show. They're <laughs> funny, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Absolutely, the tradition is always also entertaining, tr- an entertainment tradition. So these groups do and and used to travel from town to town performing their sort of like a traveling circus, acrobatics and masquerades. And the masks represent archetypes of characters that you meet every day in Nigerian life. And these are really funny, like a drunk person or a woman nursing her baby or um, a goat crossing the street at the wrong time or a fulani herdsman herding cattle across the street at the wrong time. And so all of these characters—a snake that you would see in the in the countryside that you didn't want to see. So the masks are really exciting, and they even have an, uh, an Oyibo mask or a white mask, white people uh, mask. So they imitate what they, they how they perceive white people to dance and
0: be. And, and, and that brings the the white people who are spectators into the piece in a really unusual way because you're looking at a representation of yourself. Did you experience that?
1: I did. I, they didn't. They don't use the white masks that often, the groups that I was with, and they claimed it was because the masks are so old they didn't want to um, damage them in performance. I'm not really sure if that's the case, but um, yes, when I saw myself being presented to me in a mockery, I, um, I was moved in lots of different ways. I thought it was hilarious. Um, their skit is really about how white people are, pub- they will publicly be affectionate. They're, um, they're not very uh, uh, re- reserved. And, uh, and in their Yoruba eyes, white people are too blatant with their sexuality. And um, they show that in the skit. And I saw truth reflected back to me and understood why the critique is, is there.
0: One other really important person in this book, and I'm going to take a stab at it, pronouncing his name, is Lamidi Kunli.
1: Nice. Yes. yes. Lamidi Ayankunli. Okay. Yes.
0: Tell us a little bit about him. He's, a, he's a, a linchpin to this story in this book, isn't he?
1: He really is, yeah. In anthropological terms, we would call him, um, in, in classic terms, a key informant. But I don't particularly like that term. I, would, I call him my collaborator, my partner in crime, my special friend, the person with whom I apprenticed to the culture. So I basically lived in his compound and followed him around for years. And he was willing to have me along. So we became good friends, and he taught me everything he knows about his own culture and answered all of my questions, and in many ways represents himself as a holder or a keeper of traditional knowledge, and particular traditional Bata culture. And his one of his goals in life is to see that this culture continues once his generation is no longer around, and for him that's a big task to take on. It means that he has to teach what he knows to as many people who are willing to learn. Including his own children.
0: Now, what you've described so far has all taken place in Nigeria. Yes. Does it come out here? Does it come out into the world?
1: Um, yes. Uh, partly in that the the networks that these artists have started to create through from back in the 50s through Germany and also the United States are there are the networks are sponsoring the artists to travel and perform overseas quite a bit and getting the word out about what they do and so they've actually traveled uh, internationally um, quite a bit so that's partly how the word gets out and also there's the networks who practice the diasporic forms of Bata Santeria from Cuba and Candomblé from Brazil and those communities are more and more interested in the roots in Yoruba uh, areas in Nigeria it's just that they don't have that much access. So I think part of hopefully what this book will do is open up that world to the other communities who are really interested in
0: it. You talk about the anti-politics of collaboration. That's a really great term. Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Um, I was trying to come up with a term that captured uh, people who try to collaborate with each other and um, go against the traditional... Uh, the traditional traps that we fall into when we collaborate, when rich Westerners collaborate with poor or marginalized um, developing nations and people of of developing rural nations. And so the trap is that um, the rich people exploit the poor and whether they mean to or not. And so an anti-politics would be trying to come a together across wide gaps of difference and actually do some do a collaborative project that both parties gain from equally if that's possible and um each party being hi- aware that the other one has stakes and needs um that differ from each other but trying to work through that consciously
0: could you talk a little bit about the teaching uh, uh, and performing of bata
1: sure um i uh, the teaching part is done by absorption, culture absorption. You basically, and this is how the children learn. They're immersed in the the, the music and the dance. They go along to performances with a drum and toe, or um, if you're a dancer, you just you're shoved out there in the middle of the floor, um, sort of the dance floor. It's usually just a um, the uh, outside, you know, pretty. Uh, improvised dance floor, but you're thrown out there and you hear the music and you're basically asked to dance or play. So from the time you're three or so, you're learning by, by being there. And so very much so when I was learning the dance style, that's how I was trained. I was taught to hear the the music a little bit through workshops, but mostly I just went along to performances and was pushed out there and, uh, and told to dance, go for it, and watching the other dancers. So that's really how the teaching happens. But that ty- type of learning requires time, patience, and, um, and commitment in, to, to being there. And that's something that in the Western world, I think we, we don't have much of, <laughs> time or patience, or um, a commitment to doing one thing really deeply or really well.
0: Now, you've brought some drums along here. Uh, I'd like you to first talk about drums themselves when I look at these, I think these look like something you could hang on a wall or Mm. put in a corner and say, this is a sculpture. Mm. N'atouche touche
1: pas. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they're um, organically made. So all the materials are are from from, um, nature. Uh, The wood is a special tree that grows in the area, southwestern Nigeria. Uh, The skins are made of goat. And there's skin that wrap around... They're conically shaped with double-sided double heads. And there's skin that wraps around the middle of them to tighten the two skins on the end, and that's antelope skin. And the hide that's the strap that you put around you to hold the drum is cow. And the cloth is actually woven um, by hand. And uh, that's and the straps that you play with when you, you play the drums are cow hide as well. So they're... Um, you know, they're beautiful pieces, handmade.
0: Could you uh, demonstrate some of the rhythms that you've learned?
1: I can with the, um, with the disclaimer that I actually was a dancer there more so than a drummer, but I did learn a few pieces, so sure, I could I could do a little bit.
0: Sure. Welcome on to the grab right. your drums here. Okay. Now, what sort of drums are these? What are these called? Do these have a specific name?
1: They do. Um, let me just... Um... Uh, sorry about that. Oh, no. um, they are, the bata ensemble consists of three drums. The first one is the yalu, and that's the mother drum, the improvising drum, and I don't have that here with me, um, partly because the master improvises on the m- mother drum, and I'm by far not a master. And the middle drum, which I do have, is omeleabo, which is middle drum. And the ones that I'm playing now are Omileako and Kudi, and they're the small drums that provide the background rhythm. And when all dr- three drums play together in a set, they're interlocking polyrhythms. And so they're, it's really beautiful and complex and textured. Oh,
0: that's, that's fascinating. Well, let, let's hear it.
1: All right. So this is um, a, a small drum part for a song that's called Ijoge, which is called Dance to Have Fun. Really, with bata, you have to have all three drums playing at once to get a sense of them. But that's just a small taste well, of then, one part.
0: That's fascinating. Now, uh, can you play the the, the big one down yeah, there? Describe sure. it and play it for us. All
1: right. Let's see. Actually, let me, let, me, let me just... Uh, That was just a piece from Shango, who is the orisha of thunder, of might, of power, of masculinity, for whom the drums were actually played or made, and um, that's just the middle drum part, and you can hear the one side of the skin playing a pretty traditional bell pattern for a lot of West African music, which is And then the other hand, that's actually a strap playing that, and then the hand plays the other head in a very simple um, pattern that, that sounds like this. sort of providing a bass. And then the two playing together are And then the break is what I did, which is a break signifying to the other drummers, you know, let's stop this piece and move on to the next. And the dancers do a specific dance to the break, which is really beautiful, but it's wonderful thanks well i um i'm you know learning
0: (laughs) no it's it's beautiful now there's a a a gob of something in the center of that Uh, drum what is that i forgot to say that
1: that's actually what they use as tuning paste which is a sap from a tree so it's black and it looks pasty
0: could you tell it makes
1: the um the drum head higher in tone
0: now, you were talking about the dance. one thing I have to ask: do they have steps that you have to learn, or do you just go out there and do the I, do the watusi <laughs> <laughs> right
1: Yeah, no, there are specific steps and they go really closely along with the music and um, you can the steps are often in this style of dancing very subtle, I would say, although the sho- so there's sho- shoulders and buttocks mostly and some su- some striking arm movements as well and um, the body stays fairly um, in that plane that a lot of African dance, um, the body plane that's common throughout African dance where you're um, tilted over from the pelvis, so you're having a very straight spine. And, um, and then your buttocks will move independently one from the other if you're really picking up this style of dance. And often one buttock will move to a drum beat and the other to the next. And that's a really beautiful form of dance to, to people in this culture. And women's buttocks are thought to be um, just beautiful. So the dance style kind of um, uh, highlights that in one kind of dance.
0: Is any of this written down in their own native language?
1: That's a great question. You know, not not really, not too much. The um, the book I've done a lot of searching because when I was writing my book for any sources, any and and um, uh, native native sources, I guess. And the one that I found is written by a scholar, a Yoruba scholar of the dance, and she's uh, I'm forgetting her her name. Uh, I I don't want to to mess mess up her name, so I'm going to resist saying it here, but um, I think her book is called something like Yoruba Dance, and she does a really beautiful job describing the dance and the sense of Iwalewa, which is a term that means inner beauty or inner character or beauty from within. And according to her and my experience there, a good dancer emanates the, from the inside out, this Iwalewa. So a, a beautiful dancer is expressing her or himself from inside. And that's really what counts in a lot of ways in the culture when you're looking at a dancer. You want to see that sense of iwalewa or presence.
0: Deborah L. Klein is a professor of anthropology at Gavilan College in California. Her new book is Yoruba Bata, goes global. Thank you for speaking with me, Debbie.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.